Welcome to The Bag Drop, untold stories in golf. I'm your host and co-founder of New Club Golf Society, Matt Considine. Today, we have a special edition of The Bag Drop with a very special guest who requires no introduction for the golf world. Celebrated golf course architect Tom Doak joins us for today's episode of The Bag Drop Live. That's right. We got 60 members who joined us for this one. Had a great chat with Tom. This podcast would not be possible without our friends at Golf Blueprint. Yes, the GB boys are back partnering up with us again this year for the spring meeting at Sweetens Cove, which is happening April 22nd through 24th, creating two of the most enjoyable days of golf we could dream up. It's going to be a lot of fun, and we are honored to have Golf Blueprint back in the fold. The best description I've heard of Golf Blueprint is to think about them as a personal trainer for your golf game. Do you stroll into the gym and say, I'll do a couple leg machine thingies over here. Maybe I'll hit the bench press. And if I have time, I'll run on the treadmill and get some cardio in before grabbing a smoothie. Likewise, how many of us head to the driving range without a plan? We slap a few wedges, we pick up our mid irons, roast a few dryers, and we call that practice. Replace your reactionary practice with intentional research-based golf blueprints. That's what they do. Now, without further ado, on to the show. Good evening, everyone. Thanks for joining us on this edition of the Bag Drop Live. I, for those that do not know myself, I'm Matt Considine, co-founder of New Club, and uh Occasional host of the Bag Drop podcast. We, we've started to mix it up a little bit more, which I am, am very uh, relieved to, to have such great guest hosts as our friend Jim Sitar here, who, who's been helping out with the pod. Um, but these additions, for anybody that's joined us tonight that hasn't you know, been a part of a Bag Drop Live before, I just want to give you a quick rundown on why we do these. You know, We started a book club uh, years ago, uh, Jim being one of those first members who, who helped us do that. And we said, hey, wouldn't it be cool that we're all reading these books and talking about it, but let's invite some of these authors to, to come join us. And uh, and while we were doing that, I had started the Bag Drop podcast. So I was already kind of out in the golf world talking to people um, about their, their golf lives and things that we found interesting. So it, the, the two things kind of merged. So this is why we call it the Bag Drop Live, because it's kind of the combination of uh, our book club with uh, bringing on somebody very uh, interesting and special to the golf industry uh, tonight, that that gentleman being Tom Doak, which um, I'm I'm extremely excited uh, to welcome him to, here to with us tonight. Uh, before we join in, I'm going to pass it over to to Jim, who's going to be doing uh, kind of the ba- the basis of our of our questions as we get started. Um, we'll he'll probably go for 30 minutes with Tom, and then we're going to open it up to everybody else else for questions, which I think is always one of the, the most fun aspects of this is that you get to, you know, ask Tom your own questions that are, that are burning from either our, our topic, this one right here and the, the anatomy of a golf course, which is one of my uh, uh, all-time favorites and definitely an inspiration for a lot of the things that, that we started to do at new club. Um, but, uh, but we'll, we'll open up to questions for kind of that second half of the call tonight. And just a, a note on, you know, etiquette, if you will, just make sure that, that you're muted prior to that. We don't want a whole lot of background noise. You know, Tom, I'm going to pin him here as our, our uh, guest of honor so everyone can can see and, and hear what he has to say. Um, but when it's time to ask questions, just unmute your mic. Uh, it kind of goes 
fairly order, orderly uh, when we do it that way. But unmute your mic and ask your question, and then please remute just so we can hear uh, the response. So with that, I'm going to pass it over to my main man, the host of this Bag Draft Live, Jim Sitar. Jim, take it away. Great. Thanks, Matt. And thanks, everyone who's able to uh, join us tonight. Um, special episode of the Bag Drop Live. We have uh, celebrated golf course architect and golf book writer, uh, Tom Doak, with us. Uh, Tom, thanks for joining us. Nice to be here, live from New Zealand for me. <laughs> well, tell, tell people why you're uh, in, in New Zealand at the moment. Um, well, I've built two golf courses down here before. Cape Kidnappers and Terra Edi and our client for Terra Edi. Terra Edi is a private club with very limited outside play, but it's been really successful here. So he has started a project to do two new golf courses, resort golf courses down the beach about five miles from, from the first one. Uh, Bill Cor actually just got finished with his golf course and I'm just getting started on mine. They couldn't, they could. They didn't have enough water to grow in both at once, so we kind of had to do them one at a time. Wow, very cool! And I understand you're joining us from the future. It is March third yes. in New Zealand. I'm not five hours behind you. I'm eighteen or nineteen hours ahead. <laughs> for this former English major, that's hard for me to wrap my head around. But I, I love New Zealand. Been there, been there once, and and hope to get there and and see Terra Edi and the other great courses that you're building there. Um, so as, as Matt said, um, I'll ask a, a couple questions here to get us going, um, maybe for the first 30 minutes or so, and then we'll, we'll open it up uh, to questions from the group. Um, okay. we decided to kind of focus on the anatomy of the golf course, um, which by the way, is, is celebrating its, its 30th year in print this year, which is yep. a remarkable accomplishment. Um, and, you know, since you get asked so many questions about current design projects um, it, on every podcast that you join, uh, we, we thought we'd do our best to focus a bit more on books, which I don't think you get to talk about as much. Um, nope. But I'm sure we'll, right. we'll have the occasional question about Bandon coming in in the second half. Great. I, you know, I want to I start with a, a more general question. Um, you know, as a, as a very busy golf course architect, uh, in an industry supporting an outdoor sport, requiring a lot of free time, um, which is also not known for being a, you know, an industry with a lot of voracious readers, uh, why turn to writing books about golf course architecture? Uh, well, I've always been something of a writer. You know, I, it's just, I, I mean, it's, it was a hugely useful skill when I, you know, really my whole career. When I was in college, I would write letters to everybody in the golf business asking them for advice. How do I, how do I get to where I want to go? And, you know, wh what should I go see and who should I work for? And, and I was, you know, I came into the golf business with no background in golf at all. My family barely played golf. We weren't members of a club. You know, I, I got to see some really good, I saw some of the best resort courses in the U.S. when I was a kid. That got me interested in, you know, how are these courses so much better than this public course I play every day? Um, but, you know, so I, you know, being able to write a good, concise letter got responses back from Pete Dye and Ben Crenshaw and Dean Beeman and a whole bunch of people in the golf business who sort of took an interest in me. And, um 
after I spent, you know, I spent three or four years out of college working for Mr. Dye on construction projects and, and his sons. And, and after a while of that, I didn't really know where I was going. I was writing for Golf Magazine part-time. I'd started doing that while I was in college. Um, and uh, when I had some time off in the winter, I sat down and wrote the first draft of the Confidential Guide to Golf Courses. You know, the, really the only reason I did, the, did that, I didn't really think of it that much as writing a book at the time. I thought of it as, you know, I, I'd gotten to know all these people and everybody knew how much I'd traveled and how recently. So I get calls all the time from friends, you know, members that hosted me at clubs, even like famous golfers. Like, yeah, if I'm going to, uh, Ed, you know, if I'm going to Muirfield in North Berwick, what other courses should I try to see while I'm there? You know, what's worth my time there versus going somewhere else? And I was, you know, I was getting those calls so often, I thought, I'll just try to write it all down. And, you know, that was the first draft of the book. And, you know, I just printed 40 copies and gave it away to people that had really helped me. Um, and it kind of got to be this cult thing where, you know, people, because some of those people were well-known in the golf business and they shared it with other people, the, the book was well-known long before it was really published for, for an audience. And, and that kind of indirectly led to writing the anatomy of a golf course. Um, the, the publisher, the original publisher was Lyons and Burford. They did like outdoors books, hunting, fishing, all that kind of stuff. And they hadn't done a golf book before and they wanted to get into golf. And one of them was friends with one of my editors at golf magazine. And he said, you know, can you put us in touch with him? We'd like to see that confidential guidebook that you guys all talk about. So, so they, they contacted me about publishing the confidential guide. And I was like, I'm not even sure I would want you to, you know, <laughs> that was that I knew that would be controversial and it was, that was only written for friends. So I said, I'll send it to you, but I, you know, I, I'm not sure I would do that even if you wanted to. And so I sent it, I sent him a copy and, and Peter Burford read it and said, yeah, we probably wouldn't know how to market this, you know, we're kind of new to the golf business, but you can write, you know, is there a book that you would want to write? And I said, you know, when I was in college, trying to find a copy of McKenzie's book or Colt's book or George Thomas's book on golf course architecture back then was almost impossible. I mean, most of those books, there were only ever 3000 of them printed. And they, you know, the ones that survived for 50 or 60 years were collector's items. So the only way that I could get hold of them the first time was like, you know, in the age before the internet, um, interlibrary loan. A few libraries still had copies. Although you, you sometimes found you tried to get a book through interlibrary loan and they realized that the book was lost because some collector had stolen it or, or, you know, taken it and sold it off to somebody to somebody for $300. Uh, so I said, you know, there hadn't been a book like that written in 50 years since, since all those guys in the twenties wrote theirs. Um, and, and, you know, maybe I could track, take a crack at writing something like that. And he said, yeah, that'd be great. Um, you know, we don't know, you know, we don't know the golf business that well, so we're not sure 
you know, we won't sell a lot of them right away. He thought they would actually sell them to libraries, which I don't think happened. So, but he, you know, he said to me from the beginning, you know, if your book sells, we're going to keep it in print. And they've kept it in print for 30 years. Although Lions with Burford broke up, it's now Burford Books that has the copyright on it because Peter's the one I dealt with the whole time. That's a great uh, way into into golf books and and uh, you know the whole industry of golf books. Um, and you know so much has changed in the last thirty years. Uh, but you know, I, I kind of detected in in the anatomy of golf of a golf course a certain kind of tone or, or voice that's that's fairly similar to some of those landmark 20s books um on on uh, golf course architecture what sort of influences you know as a writer did you have uh when you were writing anatomy of a golf course uh well i, I always start with my biggest writing influence was probably my mom my mom was a before she got married for a while, she was a journalism major and for a while after after school before she met my dad she uh, she worked in the offices at Cornell in upstate New York, like the Ag Extension offices. Cornell is part state university, so they do a lot of like outreach for farmers and you know all kinds of stuff. And the you know so they they have professors write papers on things to give to farmers for advice on everything under the sun. But you got a college professor writing stuff for a bunch of farmers, and it doesn't always come out that well. So, my, you know, my mom basically edited that stuff, <laughs> you know, and, and like made it readable for people. Um, so, you know, so so all my time growing up, anytime I was writing anything or asking for help or anything, I had a really good editor from day one. And, you know, and I learned to be concise and and be organized or else, you know, my mom would come in and mark it all up for me and show me what I did wrong. Um, you know, I had read all those old books fairly, fairly recently before I tried to start writing mine. And really, you know, I thought of my book as like a bit of a compilation of all those other ones, because at the, at the time they were still out of print and you could, you know, nobody thought to reprint them yet. So you couldn't find, you still couldn't find a copy of George Thomas's book. So you'll notice like every chapter in the book starts with a quote from usually from one of those books. Um, and, you know, a bunch of the halls I diagrammed, I mean, you know, this is 30 years ago. I had only actually designed and built three golf courses when I wrote the anatomy of a golf course. Um, but so I didn't, I didn't have, a, you know, there's a handful of, diagrams in there of my own golf holes but obviously i hadn't built that many yet so most of my examples are from famous golf holes and then you know all the all the places i played but also you know some of the places that have been featured in thomas's book that makes a lot of sense i mean i i see that you know anatomy of a golf course is is really in conversation with a lot of those architects and a lot of the thoughts that they expressed in um, mm -hmm. in their own writing, in their own books, you know, especially toward the second half of Anatomy of a Golf Course when you're really getting into, you know, the elements of of, of design, of, of fairways, bunkers, you know, right. the use of water hazards, trees, et cetera. Um, yeah, Peter, one, Bur Peter Burford actually, you know, when, when we first started talking about the book, I, I was going to try to do an outline, but I asked him, like, you know, if you were going to do it, just like what, what would you see me doing? 
and he sent like a little outline and it was like it was almost exactly the chapters of george thomas's book <laughs> so i guess great minds think alike and you know and i you know so i kind of went with that but you know there there were there were two or three chapters i wanted to put in that i thought you know these were the things that had come up for me in 10 years of trying to learn the business that that weren't in those books um you know the, the the chapter on psychology and design i mean none of those guys i'm sure they thought about it but they, they didn't really ever write about it um, and pete die talked about it all the time so you know i had enough of that from pete that i wanted to include something on that in particular and also the chapter about you know maintenance and how architecture interacts with maintenance yeah i appreciated that and uh, you know especially you know, you mentioned psychology, um, the, the quote from McKenzie about, you know, his, his drive to inspire the golfer rather than to, you know, intimidate him, I, I thought was, um, was really interesting and, and, and maybe something he doesn't have in, in common with, with Dai, but, but something you also don't have that much in common, you know, that, that intimidation factor. Right. You know, instead, oh, go ahead. Well, you know, most golf course architects have been great players. You know, not just really good players, but, but, you know, not just the famous tour pros and, you know, not just old Tom Morris and James Braid from the past, but, you know, people like Harry Cole and Pete Dye and, you know, most of the George Fazio, most of the golf course architects you'd think of from the past were like, you know, they played in the U S open, they played in the open championship. They were that good, you know, not good enough to make a living playing golf, but great players. And, Mackenzie was one of the very few that really wasn't. Uh, George Thomas was a really good player, you know, played in like the national amateur. Uh, Mackenzie, you know, background, medical school background, his really, I don't think he was driven to be a doctor. His father was a doctor. So he was driven by family to get the medical degree and become a doctor. But his the descriptions of his practice as a doctor are not so strong. I, one of my other books was I co-authored a book on Mackenzie's life with, with a doctor from England who became interested in Mackenzie because, you know, he was a golfer and he was like, why would a doctor drop being a doctor to be a golf course architect? So he, he spent some time trying to figure out Mackenzie's actual practice. And, you know, his comment was, you know, Mackenzie in his book writes how, how, uh, you know, as a doctor, he would tell patients, so you need to get outdoors more and you like play golf and get out and get exercise and stuff. That'll be good for you, which it is. But, but the doctor said, you know, can you imagine if that was your doctor, if the sum of your doctor's advice was get out and play golf. <laughs> it was a different time. Uh, you know, science wasn't so advanced back then. Um, you know, but, but what I'm seeing instead is, you know, uh, a thread in your book about catering to, to all levels of, of golfers through design, you know, not just for, for challenge or difficulty, um, but also playability, you know, variety of holes and shots required. Uh, why was it so important to emphasize that back when you wrote this book in the nineties? Uh, Cause by then I'd figured out that a lot of golf course architects just didn't think about that that much, even you know, I mean, everybody kind of uses the cliche of I'm building it for every class of golfers, but it's really hard to do. You, you're making decisions that if I'm going to put that bunker there to challenge, 
you know, and make it deep enough to challenge a good player, that's going to be almost impossible for a bad player. And uh, you better give them a lot of room around it, at least. Um, but, you know, I've sort of come to the conclusion that a, that a lot of these great players who are architects didn't really understand how the average person interacted with their golf courses. They didn't understand how hard it was for them. And they didn't understand, you know, that how intimidating the, the carryover water was. Even a small one that was pointless for a good player, you know, was really bothersome to a lady golfer. Um, and, you know, Alice Dye was a huge influence on me. You know, she, she pointed out very particularly that, like, you know, if you have a little, you know, if you have a little, you know, the, the average woman can carry it maybe 70 or 80 yards off the tee, you know, without worrying about it. I mean, and, you know, if, so if it, if it carries less than that off the tee, they're okay. But if you put even a small carry out in the fairway, you know, it's a stream that's 20 yards wide. And, you know, if I can only carry it comfortably 70 yards and I'm 40, 50 yards from the stream, I've got to lay up. Or I've got to take, or I'm, or I'm going to hit it in the stream a fair amount of the time. Uh, and she was like, you know, would you want to be 50 yards from a hazard and have to lay up? No, nobody wants to do that. <laughs> so, you know, trying to design things that were still challenging for good players and didn't beat up the bad player is sort of the, that's the real puzzle of golf course design. It's like, how do you do both things at once? Tom, I'm going to interject with a question. You, you mentioned the the maintenance chapter, which um, you know I, I thought was uh, it's it's one of my most highlighted sections in 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 your book, and uh, and in that chapter you discuss the the economic reality of uh, the American golf boom and and its popularity increasing the the cost of playing, which. Uh, I believe you said was unfortunate because it would price out the the average family who um, was yeah. get, was getting into golf. And I, I was I'm curious because right now I'll give you a little uh, a perspective on on my my current world. I I'm, I meet with our golf courses that we partner with, and we have 50 some courses in in Chicago land, another 25 in Atlanta, and almost unanimously the rates are going up almost across the yeah. board. And I know there's. Oh, yeah inflation and everything else. But a lot of it has to do with this COVID boom that we've experienced these last two years. And and I just wanted to get your take. After after rereading that this past week, it's been on my mind that we're in this other boom. And, you know, wh wh where do you see, you know, is this at the detriment to the industry overall? Is this something we should be cautious of with with uh, rates going up and, and everything else? Or is it just the nature of golf? Well, I mean, part of it's just supply and demand. I mean, when 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 there's a ton of new golfers flooding in and when more people understand architecture and appreciate good courses you know the good courses are going to charge more if a course gets rated in the top 100 in the country it's going to charge they look at what everybody else charges and they go we should be 285 dollars now you know they thought they were gonna they, they were they were they were building it thinking if we could get 150 that'd be great and the next thing they know, it's like, wow, we could make, we could really make money on this. Um, and those are rare. I mean, most, most new golf courses that are developed do not make money. They, they lose money for somebody at some point down the line. Um, and then, you know, 
I mean, the economics of actually developing golf courses is really weird because, you know, what happens way too often is, you know, you try to build something to a budget and to an expectation. Okay, well, you know, we're going to try to spend this much to build, you know, we bought the land, we're going to spend this much to build the golf course, we're going to try to charge this price right here and spend this much on maintenance and you know, maybe that's not like killing it, but you know, if we could be like the best golf course around this area and only charge that, we should do great. And then, you know, then down the street, somebody builds, somebody spends five times as much building a golf course connected to a hotel or real estate development. Cause they're, you know, they're spending that money from the profits of other things, not from golf. And you know, so they so they spent $10 million putting all this infrastructure in their golf course, and then the golf course park goes bankrupt, and then the next guy comes in and buys it for half of what you spent trying to do something reasonable, and now he's got a $10 million product with $2 million cost basis, and he'll kill you every time. That's happened way, way often in the golf business. It happens everywhere all the time. Um, so... You know, you can never, the boom is great. You know, the boom makes it, the boom also makes it hard for people to get on golf courses or get on the golf course that they really want to play. Um, you know, I just worry that in the end, if, if, the go, if the golf courses aren't being sustained by money from golf, I think that's a problem. You know, if you can't afford to build a golf course to just open it as a golf course, then you're probably spending too much. And what, what, what's happened is, you know, the people that were building golf courses for other things, resort, residential, whatever, who, you know, money is no object to them in the beginning because they're going to make, they're not just making golf off or money off the golf course. They're making money selling rooms next to the golf course for way more than the room would cost otherwise because it's next to the golf course. So they spend... You know, they've spent way more and they've they've brought the standard up for everybody. Now you can't just have the golf course in good shape. It's got to be perfect and perfect costs a lot more money. And most, you know, and to me, perfect is crazy to aim for. I mean, the thing that bothers me most in the golf business is that people want the golf course in such perfect condition all the time because, I really fell in love with golf in the 70s and 80s, playing on golf courses that by today's standards were horribly maintained. And it was still a lot of fun. And it's like, why can't anybody accept that now? Why does, it, why did, why does everybody have to have greens that are running 12 on the stint meter? That's nuts. But that's, that's the way our business goes. This will be my, my last question for you because it's in that same chapter. You talk about, uh, I think, the sub- the title is uh, the British tradition. And, and many of us on this call have uh, been overseas and have seen the course conditioning and the browned out fairways. And, and we've actually realized that it's added to our experience, not taken away. And right. I, I was curious because I was talking to a friend in Scotland recently who said that is, is the case. Yes. But there are plenty of clubs that see what we have in the U S with our private club model and yep. improved conditioning and, and they want yep. that. So he actually was making the argument that their way of, of maintenance is actually moving more towards ours. And, and 
So, so do you do you think that's um, it, it is it is moving that way? Yeah, it is, and for two reasons. Um, so when I lived in the UK, you know, I, I had a scholarship from Cornell when I got out to spend a year in the UK, traveling around and studying golf courses. And the most expensive golf course in the UK in 1982 was the old course at St Andrews, and the green fee was 15 pounds, $25. You know. It, right after that, it finally dawned on them, well, if people are spending $250 to fly over here to play golf, they'll spend more than $25 to play. Why don't we take their money? You know, that'll help subsidize our club. You know, so we don't, we don't have to keep raising the price for ourselves. We just raise the price for all the visitors. And, you know, for, for a long time, that's been a boon to English clubs. You know, the, they all really struggled the last two years when COVID cut off the supply of overseas golfers and they, you know, their, their economics didn't work. They had too many staff. They, you know, their dues don't even come close to keeping their golf club open anymore. That's a real problem that they just are like, Oh yeah, I guess it is. We better think through this a little more. And that, you know, that's sort of the kind of thing I'm worried about, but the reason the maintenance standards have changed over there. Sure. Some of it's just, you know, envy and what the other person has. So they're like, oh, we, you know, you know, we don't have any courses that are maintained to Augusta standards. That's, you know, they're just super impressed by that. But part of it is their maintenance, their basic maintenance program with Fescue Fairways won't stand up to an unlimited volume of traffic. It worked just fine when they were sleepy little places that did 20,000 rounds a year. But when you add in, 10,000 visitor rounds and all the visitors want a higher standard, you start having to cater to them and you start having to fertilize more to keep them from killing all the, you know, just, just walking the grass off the golf course. So it has changed their maintenance regime over time. Only at the places that, that, you know, cater to foreign golfers and, you know, they kind of have to do something to put up with all the traffic. But, you know, it's only when you go, like, in Scotland, if you go, like, way out in the sticks, if you go, like, to Macrahanish, which is still is so far of a drive around from Troon and Prestwick and those places, most overseas visitors don't get there. And that's one of the few places in Scotland now that, that looks like I remember it from 40 years ago. The other places, are they're much greener. They're still, by our standards... They're pretty scruffy and they, they'll let the turf go brown, which we, you know, you know, we don't really do. I mean, Band of Dunes, at the end of the, you know, they, they, they maintain it like a lynx, but when it starts getting off green, that doesn't last very long before they turn the water back up. And that's all just, that's what the customer wants. The, unfortunately, in golf, the biggest problem is the customer wants it to look green irrespective of whether that's the best playing surface. <clears throat> it's good to hear that, you know, golf isn't really unlike a lot of other industries where you almost have to tell people what they actually want or should want. Yes. <laughs> um, and that education is, is really hard, really hard to achieve. Um, well, that's part got, of the reason for writing a book. <laughs> Try yeah. to change people's idea of what they want. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to change minds. Yeah. Um, you know, it's been 30 years, as we said, since um, Anatomy of a Golf Course first came out. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, if you had a chance to revise, update, expand the book at all, not that you have this time, 
but let's say that you you did, what would you add or or change about the book? I don't know. I, you know, I haven't thought about that much. I, I, I have the same answer when people ask me about my courses. You know, if you went back today to one of your early courses, what would you change? And I, I don't really like to think that way that much. I mean, you know, to me, the golf courses are kind of like, it's not just like, you know, my standard is, did I use that ground the best? I'm not, you know, so I'm not comparing it to something else I did 20 years later and like, oh, the bunkers aren't as cool and we could, we, you know, we're better at shaping bunkers now than we were then. You know, I'm just looking at, does that, does that golf course fit the ground well? And if it does and it's busy and people are happy with it, you know, why tear it up? And I kind of take the same attitude toward the book too. It's like, it's lasted a long time and it's held up really well. And, you know, maybe I've learned a little more, but you know, that's the thing. I mean, most people are astounded to know that I wrote it 30 years ago and I'd only, you know, I hadn't done any of the golf courses that the people watching this podcast. know. Um, I did them all after. So most of the most of my design philosophy the philosophy hasn't changed much in 30 years. You know, what I would want to write really, that hasn't changed. What's changed is, you know, I have more practice building golf courses. I'm really good at that part now because I've had a lot of chances to do it and I've got more experience and, and I've got people helping me build them that are, that have more practice and more experience and have gotten really good at the parts that they do. Um, but actually going back and wanting to edit the book, you know, I mean, the chapter that we were just talking about, some of the things I said in there about maintenance and how Americans really overdo it. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of superintendents that at high end clubs that hate me for saying that because they that's what they you know, that's what they want to deliver to the club. And that's why they get paid as much as they do to turn the dial up as far as it will go. And, you know. That whole industry, in fact, you know, when I, when I started my first golf course, High Point was planting fescue fairways. There were a ton of people in the golf business that said that will not work in America. Just can't work. You can't have fairways like that. You know, not, and not just like people in the industry, like the turf professors at Michigan State. But, you know, they get paid by the chemical companies too. And anybody trying to do something that doesn't, increase the cost is not really well received in the golf business. <laughs> so, right. so if I were going back, some of those things that I said back then as a very idealistic young man, it's like, yeah, I'd probably offend less people if I didn't, if I took that line out. <laughs> and, and I've got some clients who would, if they read that chapter, just verbatim right now, it's like, he's crazy. We can't work with him. <laughs> Well, I mean, what's what's true in, in golf design is, is also true in writing books. You you can't please everyone. You know, you no. just have to have your own vision and stay true to it. Right. And, you know, I've you know, one of the best books I've read in the last 20 years was uh, it now? I'll blank on the on the name of it. Uh, Anti-Fragile. Nassim Taleb's book. And part of it, you know. I mean, he's a thinker, but he's also an author. He's making a lot of money writing books. And, and he explained very succinctly, you know, if you're an author, being controversial is not a bad thing at all. You know, 
If you're an artist, being controversial is not a bad thing at all because there's some people that are just, they aren't gonna like what you're putting out and you don't care because you're never gonna sell anything to them anyway. Your whole goal is to put out what you do and try to get and try to have other people point at it and say, yeah, we like that. You, you know, you should listen to this. You should read that book. Um, you know, that's how you get successful. But you don't you don't spend any time catering to the people that don't like you because it doesn't matter. They're you know, you've they're not a potential sale. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'll just ask one more question here and then we'll we'll open it up for the group. Um, are you are you working on any other books, any book projects, any ideas for, for future book projects? I am not working on any other books right now. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of a relief because I've done a bunch in the last few years. And I could say it's, it feels like it just gets harder and harder every time to finish a book. You know, the last two, if I had Sarah Mess, who used to work in my office, you know, didn't want to, she teaches now, but in the summer she, she's been helping me with these other projects. And if she hadn't been helping, I might've never finished the last two books. You know, that, that manuscript for Pacific Dunes sat around my office for 15, 20 years before we finally got around to, you know, and it was really her just, you know, gathering all the pictures that we had and we could find and, and you know, putting them in the right place with the words that it made sense. And, you know, and having her tell me, you know, you're getting too technical here. Do you need to explain that more? Um, was a big help. Um, you know, the, I mean, the, the previous book, the one I, the Getting to 18, that takes my early golf courses and talks through how the routing came to be. You know, in the back of my mind, I'll probably want to do that for my later golf courses at some point, you know, because, I mean, People that are members of Bally Neal or Stone Eagle or those places are like, they're not in your book. You cut it short. You cut it short. And we didn't get to find out about our golf course. So, but, you know, right now I'm getting really busy building golf courses again. And I will be for the next two or three years. And I need a break from the writing anyway. It's like, you know, if I'm coming home from a trip, I do not need to be worrying about getting another book done. It makes a lot of sense. We, you know, you don't want to force one thing or the other too much, no. too, too far. No, those last two books were really, those were the two that I always, you know, I thought a long time ago, like what books about golf course architecture haven't been written yet? You know, like the anatomy book was just, you know, that was a primer on golf course architecture the same way all those other architect books were. But, but I always did think, well, you know, nobody, no architect really has writ, had written a book about, you know, here's one of my projects that's fairly well known, and here's all the decisions that went into it. You know, here's how it got to be the way it is. You know, because people, you know, when I meet people and they want to talk about Pacific Dunes, they'll always ask me, were you thinking about that hole at Bally Bunyan when you, when you laid out the fourth hole? And some, you know, and after 20 years, sometimes it's hard to remember, but, you know, I made all my notes about, you know, what I was, what, what I really did think about, you know, right when we finished the golf course. So, so I still, you know, so I still had it all laid out and, um, and this, and the same for the routing book. I mean, you can try to describe the process of doing a routing and different people do it differently. So that doesn't really work necessarily but 
you know, kind of, you know, how the puzzle gets put together and what, you know, what are the decisions you're having to make to make it all fit together is not very well understood by anybody. And I thought the only way to really do it was just go through a bunch of examples of different, you know, different kinds of projects. You know, not every project is like Pacific Dunes where you could just, here's all the land I've got left, put the holes wherever you want. <laughs> you know, <laughs> most things are driven by, well, you know, the clubhouse has got to go here or, you know, we're going to have real estate development or no, you can't go next to the beach. That's people are paying big money to go to the beach here. We don't want a golf ball in there. Um, so, you know, I, so, but, you know, through, through the course of my career, I've worked on all of those different kind of projects at some point. So talking through how we did the routing for Riverfront, which is a huge housing development and all the trade-offs back and forth there, you know, that's what most golf course architects deal with most of the time. Most of them don't get to go, you know, oh, there's a cool blowout. I think I'll put a green just the other side of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, what I really appreciate that is about that is, you know, it really brings the the practical and, and uh, you know, the, the everyday kind of work of being an architect, a designer, um, you know, a, a design build uh, person, right. you know, really into focus in 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 the way that most other books don't because they're philosophizing about the you know the, the point of a fairway bunker or, right. or those kinds right. of things that are a little more abstract right and then the, the, i mean the one piece of feedback from friends who got that book were oh my god i had no idea how involved some of those clients were you know and and some of the things that they threw at you <laughs> in the you know and it's good to have them involved it's better to have them and I, I made the point that you know, my very first client was kind of absentee and not very involved in how I built the golf course. And the problem with that is when you get done, they don't understand it. So when the first golfer goes out and double bogeys the 10th hole and comes back in and says that 10th hole is too hard and you can't have that blind shot, you know, the client starts listening. Instead of if he's been part of the process all the way through, he's like, oh, bullshit, you just made double. <laughs> <laughs> Let's open up to uh, questions from the group. Uh, just remember to unmute and uh, off you go. Hey, Tom, thanks for uh, joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, what's your favorite fruit? <laughs> Nearly all of them. I mean, I, I love mango, pineapple, strawberries, you know, and I'm, I'm in New Zealand right now, so it's fresh fruit season down here, and I am loving that instead of back in the snow at home. No sumo citrus. Uh, no, I, I ask it uh, jokingly because uh, Andy loves to ask you uh, silly questions on the yolk with dope. But I think those are uh, those are really great. And one of the things you touched on in it was alternate golf projects you'd work on. Um, and I think like every you know person that likes golf dreams of owning their own course or you know the putting green down the street, convert the park in my neighborhood to a putting green or something like yeah. that. Yeah. What what do you think is actually a viable uh, urban project in, in cities. Cause you know, selfishly we're from Chicago. Part of me thinks you'd need to include AstroTurf, which, which would be potentially problematic, but, but what do you think as an alternate project would actually be viable in a city? That's a good question. And, and I, you know, I don't know. I can't think off the top of my head of anybody who's done something that's really different and it's, and it's working, it, you know, cause it would get a lot of attention if somebody does it. Um, right. You know, and I shy away from AstroTurf. I've had a couple of 
You know, I actually had a call from the USGA once when, back when they were first started thinking about building a putting green at Golf House in New Jersey. Uh, the head of the green section called me and talking through it. And he was like, do you think we should use AstroTurf? Cause we're not getting, we're not gonna have really a lot of play and it'll cost a lot to maintain. And I was like, are you kidding me? AstroTurf putting green at USDA headquarters? <laughs> I just, no, I can't, I can't be there. If you're gonna do that, I'm not the guy for that. <laughs> um, so I have to think about it. I mean, I mean, the, the best thing is just start small, start with the small putting green or like pitch and putt size thing. And yeah, maybe AstroTurf is the, you know, the, the, in Ireland, there's pitch and putt is like a whole separate thing from golf. They have all these little courses that are, there's an AstroTurf tee. The greens are normal greens, but they're tiny. They're like a thousand square feet. So it doesn't really, and, and they're, you know, the, the standard of maintenance is low, low, low. It's because they don't make any money. So, so, and those are really popular. Um, and you know, we don't have much like that in the States just that kind of small, you know, we don't really have much between the putting green or a mini golf course and, you know, full on golf and that that's kind of what you need. And that's kind of more the scale that's going to fit for an urban thing. Um, I'll, I'll jump in here. This is Dennis Aroka from Traverse city. Uh, Hi, Dennis. What's, how, what's the weather in Traverse City today? <laughs> oh, a lot colder than uh, New Zealand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, two questions. One, uh, will you sign my 1992 version of the book? Yeah, once I get back, I'm here for six weeks, but I'll be back the end of April. Great. The other question is, uh, any update on the resurrection of High Point, one of my favorite places? Uh, it actually could be a thing. It's a little too early to talk about it yet, but... There is somebody looking at doing it now that I've been in touch with, and uh, I've got my computer sitting on a uh, sitting on the dining room table here in New Zealand, and under my computer is a topo map for High Point. So it's serious enough that I've got the map out again. Awesome, thank you, Tom. Tom McCarty here from Chicago. A quick question for you: Hi, the, uh, You talked about putting the pen away, uh, not writing. I think I've heard in other interviews where you've talked about not wanting to do any more consulting work at this stage of your career. Mm -hmm. I spent five and a half years in Bermuda and saw the rework on 13 at Mid-Ocean and then the re return to the old uh, green. I really liked the work that you did there. Um, when you're looking at projects now, I assume that you have more options available to you than you can digest. How do you go about selecting the next project that you want to work on is it land related developer related uh just something inside your soul that stirs you that that makes you want to work on it or how do you go about that selection process i mean very much from the gut just feeling feeling excited about something that i'm looking either either you're excited about the land or you're excited about what the client is talking about doing at the end of the day those are the two most important things i had this I had this project manager guy that I worked with with the dyes very early in my career. And he said, you know, he was he was in a class on golf course architecture and he was like, what surveys do you have to do before you start? And, they, you know, I think they were looking for like topographics and 
and uh, drainage and something. He said the land, the owner, and the money, <laughs> which, you know, which we all just busted out laughing, but it's, it's, it's kind of true for, you know, for a good project to come together. Those are the three major things. And, you know, you're not, you, you know, it's rare when all three of them are perfect, you know, usually, you know, if two of them aren't really good, stay away. <laughs> but usually one of the three is a little more compromised than the other two. Um, but, you know, to me, it's about, you know, does this excite me? And it always has been, you know, I've never, I mean, I was turning down, not really turning down jobs, just not, you know, somebody would approach me about, hey, would you come see this? And I'd go look and it wasn't something that excited me. You know, I just like never really pursue it or call them back or whatever. And I was doing that like when I was building High Point, you know, the, from the very beginning, you know, I've had way more chances to pursue different projects than I really have. To, you know, I want to put if I find one I like, I want to put a lot of time into it. So I can't be just doing everything people call me about. And, you know, that's. That was hard for me in some ways because I don't really like saying no to people and look them in the face and, you know, no, I don't want to do your project. Well, why not? And, you know, I don't want to have to explain that. I just, I don't want to do it. Um, so, but always from the beginning, I've just been, you know, I only pursue like one thing out of every four or five that goes in front of my radar because those are the ones that sound really interesting to me. Hey, Tom, uh, Andy here in Chicago. How are you? Good. Good. Hey, coincidentally, uh, I just, right before this call, got off a call with um, uh, one of the uh, pros at Dismal River in, uh, in Nebraska. And okay. uh, I'll, be, I'll be heading out there in August to check it out. We might be doing a feature story. I publish a, a golf magazine here in Chicago called Golf Chicago Magazine. But the uh, question for you is, twofold what can i expect on uh, your 18 holes and uh with the great sand in wisconsin and nebraska wh where do you see those two states in particular growing in the next next year five years ten years and seems like they're, they're they're the rage right now right you know nebraska's harder i mean the, the land there is just about perfect for golf and at least out in the sand hills you've got that giant aquifer right under there so water's no problem either so it's it's a very you know it's like the easiest and least expensive place to build a golf course in america so everybody mm -hmm. thinks well that'd be great you know we can build a great golf course for half what most what it costs anywhere else the problem is the season's so short i mean you know, a dismal river is open for four or five months. And, you know, and that wouldn't, if it was just the golf course, that would be one thing. But, you know, when you got to build like lodging for everybody to stay and, you know, and you might have to house some of the employees because there's just so little population out there, um, you know, and you build structures for all of them. And then seven months of the year, nobody's in it. It's hard to make the numbers work on that. So really none of those projects out there are money makers. People do it because they, they love golf. They want to do something cool, you know, but I don't know how many more of them there will be there. I'm actually looking at something now in Texas, which is it's kind of the same kind of land, but it's 70 degrees there today. You know, they'll, they'd be open most of the, it might be too hot for a month or two in the summer, 
but they'd be open most of the year, and that would be a really big difference. Um, you know, Wisconsin, they've got it a little better. The season's like Traverse City. It's six months, plus or minus. Um, but they've also, you know, they got population, so they don't have to worry about housing people the same way. Um, and there's quite a bit of good land there to, to be used. I mean, you know, it's funny. When I started in the golf business, I said, you know, I'd like to try to build golf courses on good pieces of land instead of swamps and, you know, flat pieces of desert. And everybody just laughed at me like, oh, no, all the good land's gone. It's been gone for a long time. <laughs> it's like, well, I guess not. You know, my whole career is just like people showing me beautiful pieces of land to work on. They're out there. You know, it's just they're further away from civilization. So it's a little harder to make the business work. Hey, uh, Tom, this is uh, Alex from Chicago. Thanks Hi, uh, for joining us today. Appreciate it. I have a question for you uh, around some non-traditional designs. So you talked about doing things that were new and interesting. I'm a big fan of uh, reverse play, like the old course was made to play at one point, uh, nine-hole yeah. layouts, even three-hole layouts that you could play into, yeah. you know, nine-hole layouts. Are you seeing more and more of that come in? Because as always, time is an issue with most golfers. And if you can play a quality course that's nine holes, you might be more comfortable than, oh, I'm going to play this you know, dog track that's nine holes. We've got some great nine holes, as you're aware, here in Chicago. So just your thoughts on non-traditional designs moving forward. Uh, there is certainly a lot more interest in non-traditional golf courses now. And you know, some of the places that have gotten the most ink the last few years, like Sweden's Cove is a nine-hole golf course. Um, you know, the, the economics of nine hole courses are a little tricky too, because you've got to, you, you got to hire, you still got to hire a superintendent. You still got to buy a lot of maintenance equipment, but you're, you know, maybe it'll last longer because you're only mowing nine holes, but it's still like, there's a lot of, you know, base costs for operating a golf course, no matter how many holes there are, but it's harder to make, you know, but you don't get to charge as many people every day because it's only nine holes. So, so in smaller towns, it makes all the sense in the world. And, you know, I, years ago, actually before the recession, I was looking at doing a resort project and they didn't like, they were, they thought they had to have a golf course at the resort, you know, even though they had a ton of other amenities too, but they really didn't like the golf course because it was taking up so much of the land that they were going to use. And they, they thought they had a deal to buy a piece of land next to it. And that fell through. And they were, they were really grinding on it. Like, we're not sure, we don't really like how much land the golf course is taken up. We might not be able to have equestrian because we have to have this 18 hole golf course. And I was like, do you really need an 18 hole golf course? I mean, how many people that go, you know, you're building a resort for all these other things. How many rounds of golf do you expect them to do every day? And I asked because I had been there, we'd been, we'd been staying at another resort and I was there, we were there on like President's Day weekend and there were, there's hardly anybody on the golf course. They were all at the beach or doing something else. And, and unfortunately I talked myself out of a job because after doing the numbers, they were like, we're not going to build a golf course at all. <laughs> we're going to save ourselves a ton of money because only 30 people a day are going to play it. <laughs> Very interesting. Well, thank you. Hey Tom, it's David in Chicago. Love your work. Uh, love law students in particular. I can play that course every week. Uh, all 18 holes. Love it. Um, question for you, as I was reading through uh, this this book, actually an early part of the acknowledgments really stuck out to me, the the idea of you writing the dies for, for a couple of years in order to land that job and 
think you're about 20 at the time and, and maybe you stayed for five or six years. Can you just talk about, I mean, you, you clearly have um, a contrarian uh, bent and, and I do as well. And, and I really appreciate that and a desire to be unique and different. W- what was it like sitting under Dai um, and his wife and, and just seeing their operation you had seen so much of the world already in terms of golf. What resonated the most with you and how did you know it was time to leave? And how would you describe your own style versus the dies? Uh, ooh, long question. And I don't know how much time we've got. <laughs> this could run on a while, but um, I'll tackle the middle part first. I mean, how, how, how did I know when it was time to leave? You really didn't, but the dyes were just, they didn't really have a company set up at all. And I was actually, I did get a check from Pete for a little bit at one point, but that was really rare. Usually you worked, you know, he just like, he got hired to design the golf course. And then he brought a bunch of young guys to help build it who were on the developer's payroll. We were never really on Pete's payroll. So there was never there was no job security after the job that you were working on. So people ask me all the time, well, how, how is it so many of you guys have been successful on your own? And it's like, we learn to be comfortable with the idea that you don't know where your next job is coming from. You know, that was just, that was the reality for us from the beginning. Whereas if you've worked in Tom Fazio's office for 15 years and had a nice steady paycheck every day while you're going out and doing your thing, stepping away from that is really hard to do. With Pete, it was just like sooner or later, you're going to get sick of traveling and following him around or you're going to do something they don't like and you're done. (laughs) Um, At the time, Pete was actually trying to farm the business, more of the business out to his two sons. So I would have worked for Pete and Alice as long as they would have had me. But trying to help the sons get out in business on their own just felt different. And especially since it felt like they didn't have the same appreciation for it that their dad did, or at least one of them didn't, the other one did. But so that, that made it pretty easy to think, you know, I mean, I literally thought when I was working for Perry Dye at one point, I think I could find a better job to do on my own than the projects that he just signed up. Uh, So I took the plunge and tried, even though I didn't really know how I was going to do that. Um, as for working with him, you know, when I worked for Pete, he was only working on one or two projects at a time. And he and Alice were renting a house somewhere close by. And my, the very first project I worked on, Long Cove, I was there for like 75 days in the summer working on a construction project. Show up at 6.30 in the morning to start work. And Pete Dye was there at 6.30 in the morning, like 60 days out of the 75. I mean, that's how into it he was. At you know, that was when he was about my age now. He was in his late 50s, and he was still that motivated to go out there and build something cool. And, you know, he didn't need any of us to help him design anything. That took me about two days to figure out. <laughs> um, you know, he needed people to help him build the golf course. So that's what you, you helped build something, and then you learned from watching and from chatting with him while you were doing it. And he was always great to me from the time I was a skinny 20-year-old kid. You know, I mean, like two weeks into my first job with him, I was giving him a ride out to one of the holes one morning, and he's like, 
he was telling me about a project that he'd done years before that they were going to host a tournament on. And he was like, he, he did not like the golf course. In the middle of the project, the client had like changed things and made him move four or five holes. And he did not like how it turned out. And he's looking at me, 20, you know, and I know he wasn't thinking I was ever going to be able to design things on my own, but he still looked right at me and said, you've always got to be willing to walk away if you just don't think you can build something good anymore. And, you know, maybe that wasn't the best thing to say to me because my personality is a little that way anyway, but, you know, Pete Dye at 57 could get away with that a lot better than me at 30. So it, that was maybe not the best thing to hear from some perspectives, and it got me a reputation for being controversial. But at the same time, I'm really proud of everything I've ever built. And I've never felt like, yeah, don't, you know, I never have to tell anybody, yeah, don't go see that golf course. I mean, that was, that was just a pain in the ass, and I wish I hadn't done it. Hi, Tom. It's Lonnie and Lucy from Minneapolis. Um, Hi, Lucy. How are you? Good. Um, quick question, uh, kind of as uh, for a lot of armchair architects, the, the idea out there is, you know, focusing on interesting golf holes that really prioritize um, aiming to a certain size of the fairway, uh, side of the fairway, a certain part of the green, whereas yeah. a lot of modern strategy talks about shot dispersion and avoiding hazards and not as and acknowledging yeah. you can't really place the ball where you want to. Um, how do, can those two concepts be married or do they really have to when you're trying to design new courses? Well, you know, I never really thought about the whole new method of managing your way around the, the way the tour pros manage their way around a golf course now by aiming 32 yards away from the hazard or the bunker that, you know, just taking things out of play the way they do. I mean, P. Dye had always had a pretty good sense of that. You know, when I worked for him, he, he just he talked about how the, how the best players were really super conservative and you just couldn't get them. You know, you were trying to build things that made them want to take a risk, but they were too smart to do. it, And they always just played to the safe side, no matter what. They, they wouldn't go for the best angle if that could get them in trouble. They'd stay away from that because they were good enough that it didn't kill them on the on the far end. You know, they were still going to make par. So. It is hard to, you know, when we were doing the Memorial Park project, which is a, you know, it's a public golf course that they were moving the tour event to in Houston three years ago. I started like trying to read up on that to think, okay, how can I incorporate this and or use it against those guys? And I got to spend a fair amount of time talking to Brooks Kepka and a couple other tour pros about, you know, if I do this, does that affect you or do you just ignore it and go this way anyway? And, you know, and, you know, the more I talked to Brooks, it was like, yeah, we really don't, we really don't need a lot of hazards out there to challenge those guys. You know, if the bunker is in a place that it would really bother them, they'll just stay away from it. So, so we wound up with a golf course that only has 18 bunkers instead of 60 or 80 or however many we usually build. And, you know, that's really affected me going forward. I don't think I'm going to build nearly as many, you know, you realize that you are building a lot of things more for visual reasons than, than thinking that they're strategy for great players. By the same token, I don't, I don't totally agree that angles don't matter. I mean, 
you know, they don't matter as much at the tour pro level when you can hit the ball straight up in the air and have it land straight down where you want it and stop. But even so that, you know, I, I know there's plenty of things that Pete Dye used to do and that I do on courses that annoy tour pros. It's like you put a mound so close to the pin that I've got to stay away from it because I might hit the downside of the mound and it'll bounce away and that'll be unfair. Like, okay, we'll do that next time. <laughs> That's the way Pete thought about everything. It's like, what, what, what is bothering those guys? That's what affects them. We need to do more of that. Uh, but, you know, besides them, I mean, yeah, the 25 handicap, 30-year-old guy who hits a 260 in any direction, you can't really design for him. But his dad, who's 60 years old and hits it, was used to be better golfer, but now he only hits it 180. Or his mom, who hits at 150 and just dead straight every time, angles matter a lot for them. You know, they don't hit the ball so high. You know, anytime you're playing low trajectory, the angle of the slopes going into the hole matter a lot because they've got to land the ball short and those slopes come into play. So, you know, when I say I'm designing for every golfer, a lot of times the average golfer makes you want to do more interesting things and more complex things than the great players do anymore. Hi, Tom. It's uh, Matt Rappaport. I, uh, I'm in Atlanta. I wanted to just kind of piggyback off what you were just saying. Um, I've had the chance to play The Loop and um, Stream Song Blue. Love both. Um, but Bally Neal was uh, a different level. And to your point, um, I love how you can play match play and it's very playable for all skill levels. My dad, who's a 20 handicap and my brother, who's, um, you know, high single digits. So it can make it a lot of fun. Um, to that point, what would you say? I know you have your kind of top 10 on your website, but could you give us three or four courses that would be a similar enjoyable experience that you would want to take your closest friends and family to, um, to play match play or do a small tournament? Of my own golf courses or golf courses around the world? Both, please. Okay. Uh, for my own, you know, I, I've always thought, you know, people ask me, what's your favorite golf course that you've done in a lot of different ways. And, and every time you ask me, you know, the different words you use, I'll give you a different answer, but uh, I've always thought Bally Neal was like one of the most fun golf courses I built, just partly for what you're saying. You know, anytime you build something that's kind of linksy and the ball, you know, you they keep it dry and the ball really rolls out off the tee. I mean, what you're doing there is making a length less of a factor and everything else more of a factor. And that's why that's why when you see that when you see the Open Championship on TV, that's the one event that like. You know, Tom Watson, when he's in his 50s or the older players still have a good chance because the length is not so important there. It's plotting your way around the golf course and it's hitting golf shots in the wind and trying to, you know, hold the shot against the wind or or use the wind to get more roll on a certain hole. You know, things that most tour players don't have to think about from week to week. And, you know, they, and they don't really want to gear down and try to play that way in a, in a major championship. So the older guys, that's where they have a chance. And, you know, that, you know, just further down the food chain, that's where the average golfer has more of a chance, too. So I've been lucky to design a bunch of Lynx golf courses. Um, 
you know, Pacific Dunes was the first. Uh, Old McDonald probably plays the linksiest in terms of like, you know, features on the ground and trying to land the ball short and roll over a ridge in the front of the green um, instead of just flying it there. Um, Barnbugle in Tasmania, that's, that's got to be one of the three best golf courses I've done. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough competition. Uh, that's still a favorite place. Just everything about, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a perfect link site right next to the beach um, with wallabies and kangaroos bouncing around for added character. Um, you know, golf courses of the world, um, I'll just name the, the one that, that I think I've helped put back on the map a little bit. You know, 40 years ago when I went to Scotland, um, North Berwick was considered, oh, it's just, it's a, just, it's a short golf course. It's not really that challenging. You know, people skipped it. People would go play Muirfield and Gullen, and instead of driving three miles farther to play North Berwick, they'd turn around and go to Prestwick or St. Andrews or somewhere else. And I think I've always thought that it was one of the best golf courses in the world. Uh, there's so many really cool holes that you don't see. Some things you don't see anywhere else, like there's a hole with a stone wall running in front of the green. Uh, some things that you see lots of other places because Charles Blair McDonald liked it and took the idea of the Redan and maybe took the idea for the 16th green and used it on a bunch of his own golf courses. Um, and, you know, now, once again, it's considered a really cool golf course, even though it's still short and, you know, a place where you can score pretty easily. But, you know, I, I think you can still find places like that in a lot of different corners of the world. You know, the, the rankings for a long time were just, you know, if it wasn't long enough to challenge a tour pro, then it wasn't worth talking about as a, as a course to be ranked. And that's really changed in the last 15 years, and I'm glad. Hi, Tom. This is Ryan in D.C. Uh, first of all, just want to say thanks for joining. Um, got a chance to talk with you briefly out at Stone Eagle in December and really appreciated uh, the words you had to say about the course. Really enjoyed um, the middle stretch with the elevation of the tee boxes, et cetera. My question uh, is about uh, a comment you made in No Laying Up's tour sauce this past year. Um, mm -hmm. In talking about the loop, you basically said you don't care if people think golf courses that, that you've designed are too hard and that you think you need to plot your way around respective designs. Um, those comments reminded me a lot of uh, ones Mike Strands made, especially around Tobacco Road. So I'd love mm -hmm. to hear uh, what your professional relationship was like with Mike and maybe how his design philosophy uh, influenced you maybe earlier in your career. You know, I, I didn't know Mike very well. I only, I, I really only spent time with him twice. Once when, when I actually, right after I quit working for the Dyes and I wasn't, I didn't have a job on my own yet and I wasn't sure where I was going, I spent a day in Tom Fazio's office and only spent a little time with Tom Fazio. I spent a lot of the day with uh, Mike and Dennis Wise and Jan Beljan, who were kind of his three main associates or three of his four main associates at that point. So I got to know him a little bit then and, you know, he was clearly a different thinker and and a lot more engaged and brought up different courses and holes that he really liked. So I, you know, I, and, you know, and then I saw he actually, one of his very first projects on his own 
um, I did a course. I did a course at the Legends in Myrtle Beach, my second course ever. And I was supposed to do another of the courses there. And Gil Hansen and I actually started on it. And the, the client was not liking what we were doing. He thought it was too subtle. He wanted something more dramatic. And, you know, I was getting busy. We had a couple other jobs to get going. And that's the only job that I've ever walked away from because I, I just, you know, the client didn't want what we wanted to do. And, you know, and he knew enough to get the thing finished. You know, in the end, he hired Mike Strantz to help finish it. So that was one of the, so, so Gil Hansen and I and Mike Strantz all shaped features on the Parkland course at the Legends. None of us wanted to take credit for the thing <laughs> because, you know, it wasn't, it didn't turn out like any of us wanted, you know, we didn't have total say over what, what happened and we didn't get to do it all ourselves. Um, but, you know, Mike really was a maverick. He did, it didn't bother him at all that, that some people didn't like his work. You know, he, I, I know he was a little perturbed at me at some point because, you know, I pointed out, you know, I thought what he did was cool. I didn't always think it was practical, you know, like, you know, putting a 20 foot high bunker face, you know, had erosion problems and nobody, you know, at the time he was just a super genius and everybody should build everything like that. And I was like, you can't build everything like that. That really doesn't, it's not gonna work most places. So I'm a big fan of some of his golf courses, but, you know, we didn't really ever spend a lot of time together. Um, you know, I wish he'd gotten to do more because there's really, you know, there, there are maybe a couple of young guys now that are trying to do stuff that looks a little more like that for the first time in a long time. I mean, it's, you know, and, and I'm not one who believes, even though that's not really my thing, I'm more of a minimalist but I don't like always want to be locked into that where I can't ever do anything else. And I don't think everybody else should do that too. You know, I think it's great. You know, it'll be great for the business if it gets busy enough again, that somebody has the nerve to do something different. You know, when they're only building five golf courses a year, you can't stick your neck out very far for fear. You know, somebody won't like it and you'll never work again. You know, when times are good and, a lot of people are busy. That's when there's competition. I got to do something different than everybody else is doing it. And hopefully we'll get back to that a little more now. Uh, my name's George Myers. I'm from Chicago. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, great. Yeah, really uh, appreciate all the work, you know, you've done with the dyes and just, you know, your travel and uh, all the knowledge you've gained. And, uh, you know, just quickly, I've got a wife who's in the Western horse riding and I heard you say that thing about the equestrian thing with golf. And uh, we're both sort of mountain people, even though I live in Chicago. So in the future, you know, we'd like the Tetons or other places like that. But do you know of any places that have successfully done like a, a riding thing with golf um, and have that work? Do you know? Yeah, I, would, I wouldn't say that they're, that they're integrated very much. But um, actually two projects I did out West, both Rock Creek Cattle Company in Montana and a place yes. called Tumble, and a Tumble Creek in Washington, which is about an hour and a half back east from Seattle up over the pass. Uh, they, both those places are, you know, they're second home communities and mm -hmm. they've got a lot of people that are into equestrian stuff and golf stuff and just all kinds of outdoor stuff. So of, of all the projects I've done, those are the two that by far have like, 
you know, the widest variety of stuff for people to do besides just golf. Um, And, you know, we've got a, we've got a project we've been planning in Northern California for like five years that would be the same and maybe better, but, uh, I'm not even sure if it's going to get built right now. It's all, it's all tied up in permitting and court and God knows what will happen with it. It's a very cool site. It's a, and again, it's, you know, it's the same as, you know, Rock Creek can have all that because it was a huge piece of land. It was like 50,000 acres when I started. Um, and this thing in Northern California is, it's not that big, but it's that kind of scale where you've just got tremendous variety of property and, you know, the golf course will be cool because it, you know, it, it takes up a lot of elevation change and, and some really dramatic views. Um, but every other aspect of the project will be better for that too. Uh, next question. Thank you. Yep. Hey Tom, it's uh, Patrick here in DC as well. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Um, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you fine. Yep. Um, I, I wasn't sure if you're aware, but next week over at uh, East Potomac, they're going to do a reversible day. I think they're letting us play 11 or 12 holes or something. I saw you were recently out there. I uh, wanted to get your thoughts on, on, on that. I know you've talked about it at length in other podcasts, but you were most recently out there. So what you were out there doing and, and, and what, what do things look like uh, forward in the future? Uh, you know, it's kind of hard to predict the future of how soon anything will happen there. It's going to take a lot of money to rebuild that place and restore it. And the National Park Service is, you know, one of the one of the things they liked about National Links Trust from the beginning was, you know, they re- they were really talking about restoring it, and that you know the National Park takes the word restoration really seriously. So they want it restored correctly, even if, you know. But that that just means you're going to have to spend more money and get it really right. Um, so. Um, yeah, I was there a month ago at the, I was trying to get cut, touch a lot of bases before I came to New Zealand for two months. Cause I can't, I can't help them much from here right now. Um, and, you know, really start to put together for like, you know, the, I mean, the problem with East Potomac park is it just doesn't drain very well. It's very, very flat fairway going into roughs. And there are some drains that, that, get the water out in the Potomac eventually, but the water doesn't get to the drain very fast. And I don't know if that's because it's settled or whether you just didn't plan that much, that much fall for surface drainage in the beginning, but you know, that's what we got to fix. So, you know, we're going to build all the same golf features, but those, those inland holes have to be a little higher than the others to get the water off without, you know, without doing drain inlets and, sump pumps every 100 feet in order for it to work. Um, so I was putting, the, we, we, this is the first time we've really seriously looked at it, like, okay, which trees do we have to save so we can't disturb the ground there? And then uh, how, much, how much earthwork, you know, draw a grading plan, how much earthwork is it going to take to get everything to really drain well? You know, so let's, because there's, there's a couple of big projects about to happen there they're going to rebuild the seawall around the park. That's going to generate some, they may dredge around it some. They're also doing some big like tunnel thing, some utilities tunnel underneath the whole place that there'll be dirt coming out of. So, you know, we're trying to figure out, you know, how much do we need and 
you know, can you can you send some of that here instead of trucking it to Virginia somewhere to get rid of it? Um, so if those things happen, that might speed it. You know, I've always thought it was it was still five years away. It would take them at least that long to raise the money. But if some of those other things happen faster, it might happen faster. I don't really know. Um, plant reverse will be really interesting right now. You know, it's it's. I mean, it's it's been changed quite a bit from the original. So there's some holes that don't that just wouldn't work worth a damn in reverse, and that's why you're only going to play 12 holes in reverse. Some of them are still going to be awkward because. Even though, of course, it's St. Andrews, they don't, it doesn't play as well in reverse because they don't mow all the parts that they need to mow for it to work well in reverse. You know, like you can't bounce the ball into the, into the back of the first green at St. Andrews. They're not mowing all that tight for two days a year that they play in reverse. Um, and East Potomac will have some of that too. You'll have some, you'll have a couple of really funky approaches to, but you'll have some pretty cool ones. It, it, it will be a very different perspective on things to see it backwards and like, oh, wow, that's a, that's a much different, you know, if, if it works really well, it's like, is this the same place? Is this the one, I, is this what I'm used to? It really looks different. We got time it's for, for just probably two questions oh, here. I was right with you, Jim. Yeah, two more questions. We got uh, Brian Hilko, you're next. Oh, you lost your turn, Brian Hilko. We're going uh -oh. to Scott Scott Ford. You're uh, you're up. Hey Tom, thanks for joining us tonight. Coming to you live from Atlanta. Just real quick, thank you for Pacific and Old Mac. Um, been very fortunate to play some some unique places, and uh, those two just absolutely move the soul. Um, I can't be I can't put into words. Right, I think. We always talk about if you know, you know, and uh, those are those are two of the places in, in my golf space that just absolutely move the soul. One quick question for you. Uh, recently, you know, JT talked about getting into some uh, some design work, some architecture work there with uh, with Jack. Um, yep. If you were to talk to tour pros or, or somebody like that about getting into the business, what's uh, what's one piece of advice that you'd give someone like that who is well distinguished on the golf course, well established, but then starting to dip their toe into uh, the other side. Well, uh, well, first of all, thank you for the comments on Pacific Dunes and, and Old Mac. I mean, that, those were special projects for us to work on. And, and you know, I always thank Mike Kaiser because, you know, Pacific Dunes led to a bunch of other great projects for me, you know, both that I could show how well I could do something if I had a great piece of land, but also the fact that Mike developed it and it was so successful made the business case for other people that, yeah, we can do that too. You know, that's how I wound up in New Zealand in the first place. Julian Robertson played Pacific Dunes the second day it was open and called me a month later and said, man, I've got this ranch down in New Zealand on clifftops 500 feet above the ocean. Would you be interested in working there? Um, uh, advice for tour pros. Well, I mean, I've known Ben Crenshaw for 40 years. I started writing to him as soon as I got into landscape architecture at Cornell. You know, he hadn't been involved in design yet at all. He was only like, well, he would have been about 30 then. But, but he was all, he, even then, everybody knew he was really interested in architecture and seeing cool old golf courses and stuff. So I wrote him a letter and said, you know, I'm trying to do that. 
if you were me, what would you do? And we were pen pals for like two or three years. And, and then he, um, you know, he said, well, if you're ever around a tour event, just come out on a practice day and you can walk inside the ropes with me. So I did that with him about five times and, you know, like got to see Lanny Watkins and David Graham and Seve from about that far away. Pretty cool thing. Um, you know, Ben is a very humble guy and, you know, when he actually made his move to get in the business, he partnered up with somebody who was really good and he shared credit with them. That's pretty rare. You know, Jack, Jack Nicholas, eventually you learn who worked for Jack Nicholas and helped him build all those courses, but they're not on the masthead. Um, most other tour pros that get in design, you know, the client, it, it's not just, it's not necessarily just the tour pro. It's like the client is paying all the money to promote Jack Nicholas's name or Justin Thomas's name. They don't want to know who Kyle Franz is or whoever, you know, they're always going to have somebody helping them because there's a lot of technical parts of it. They don't understand yet. Um, or they just, you know, if they're still actively playing golf on the tour, they don't have time to be as involved in the design as I am. They're, you know, their full-time job is playing the tour. So, you know, they need help. Right. The advice is find the best help that you can. And if you want to keep them around, you know, make them feel like part of the team and share credit with. I love that. I mean, you hear Ben talk about when he, when he got into the business and it was the echo, you, Oh, I say this, what you just shared is exactly what he talked about was sharing the credit, looking for the best and, and those types of things. So yeah, great, great feedback. Thanks so much. And there's a, and just to follow up on that, there's a ton of talent out there to help those guys if they want it, you know, right. and, and there, and, and, but some of the best of them are going to be a little touchy about it if they don't get any credit for it at all. You know, they, cause they think they're that close to making it on their own. You know, so so it would help them, you know, they they get to build a lot more projects and they, you know, they they get a lot better at the craft if they work with those guys. But, okay. you know, they they just want some credit for all the years they've put in up to now getting to where they they are the guy that you need. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much. Well, Tom, that takes us to the. Uh... 7.30 Central, 8.30 Eastern, whatever time that is for you in New Zealand. Uh, 2.30 in the afternoon. <laughs> okay, 2.30 p.m. in the in the future. Um, just deep down, thank you for being with us. I mean, and thanks, everybody, for joining. If uh, if you're on this call because, you know, Tom jo T Doak was with us and, and it wasn't because of our March book club selection or February book club <laughs> selection of Anatomy of the Golf Course, I can't recommend this book enough, Tom, because – I honestly, I read the book uh, before I knew you from all your different podcasts and, and everything. And, and so I didn't really even know who the author was of this book. I was just reading it as someone who was really trying to get into golf course architecture. And, and it, I, I'll, I'll say this it, almost immediately after finishing the book, going out and playing my next round, um, it wasn't about score as much for me. There was so much else I was now uh, occupied with enjoying. And, and I think that's the real value that I I've taken from the book is that I can look at golf in so many different ways after reading it. So for you, those that haven't read it, I, I just, I love, um, can't endorse it enough. 
Uh, well, thank you for that. And I hope it does. It will also distract you from scoring your best. So, so I hope you get enjoyment out of it in return for that. <laughs> the game's trended in the wrong, in the wrong trend line. So I need other things to focus on. Um, but, but thanks everybody for joining us. Uh, Jim, thank you for hosting. Great job. And, and Tom, thanks again, man. This was really a fun evening with you. All right. Thank you very much. I've got some errands to run this afternoon. Um, you know, we're still, I'll be back, back home in a couple months and back to work in Wisconsin. We'll have a, another golf course in New Zealand for you in a year or so. And, uh, and if you've never made the trip down here, your wife will think it's the best place in the world. And you probably will too. We, we got some, we have an inter, international, uh, I think it's 2024 is our next international trip. That's open vacancy. So maybe, maybe there's a, a visit in the future. It's a bucket list adventure down here. All right. Thank you. Everybody. Take care. Nice Thanks guys. Thank Everyone you, have a good evening. Thanks Tom. Today's episode of the bag drop was brought to you by our friends at golf blueprint started by fellow new club members, Kevin Moore and Nico Doris golf blueprint creates research driven improvement plans tailored to your game. If you are a member of New Club, you can sign up directly in the app for your Golf Blueprint membership. You will receive six improvement plans delivered monthly at a 25% discount. If you're not a member of New Club, head over to golfblueprint.com.